3: Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. We'll be joined by Speaker of the House Mike Johnson. Getting serious
1: about the border. 7 million, roughly 7 million known border crossings illegally. That's twice the population of my state of Louisiana. It's not sustainable. And what is at stake? The national security begins at our own borders. We have to maintain our own sovereignty.
3: We'll also get an update on Israel's war against the terror group Hamas.
2: The political leadership, Khalid Bashal and others in Qatar, have apparently turned off their phones and left their residences and are on the move.
3: Plus, a look at special counsel
4: Jack Smith's case against Trump. We're in uncharted water. Uh, I don't believe there's ever been a case like this. All this and more.
3: I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. Catch my program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. And follow me on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, at Hugh Hewitt. Please follow this program as well on X, at Town Hall Review. We'll begin in Washington, D.C. with the Speaker of the House, Speaker Mike Johnson, It was October 25th when the Louisiana Congressman, first elected in 2017, became our nation's 56th Speaker for the House. He was elected by 220 votes of his fellow Republicans. The fundamentals have not changed. The GOP majority is narrow. The country is politically polarized, and the issues facing the nation are enormous. The border, the budget, Ukraine. Israel's war with Hamas and China with their eyes on Taiwan. I was pleased to welcome Speaker Johnson onto my program. and would like to get an update on the supplemental funding for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and the changes to border law before we talk about Harvard. Where is that and what do you expect to happen?
1: Listen, from the day I got the gavel to you, I mean, quite literally within 24 hours, I went to the Situation Room and I sat down with Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor. I've talked to the Secretary of Defense, I've talked to... Uh, the Secretary of State, everyone who will listen to the White House. And i told them the same thing. I said, listen, we understand there will be a supplemental spending package, but you must address the U.S. border. See, we believe very clearly, and I think the American people agree with us, that national security begins at our own borders. We have to maintain our own sovereignty so that we can project peace through strength and help our friends. And so I don't think that's an outrageous uh, request. They've known about it for over six weeks. I've pushed and prodded and and begged them to get us more details and to get us something, some movement to have transformational change at that border. And they've done nothing. And so here we are on the eve uh, virtually of, of Christmas and the end of the year. And the White House, as we talked this morning, has not moved in our direction on that issue. And I've told them very clearly where we stand. What are
3: Republicans asking for in terms of the border changes, Mr. Speaker?
1: Well, we have to stem the flow, Hugh. I mean, 7 million, roughly 7 million known border crossings illegally, two, at least 2 million gotaways. That's twice the the population of my state of Louisiana. We had 12,000 people come over the border one day last week on Wednesday. It's not sustainable. You know, almost 300 suspects on the terrorism watch list are here. We, we have to have changes and policies can do this. The president has the power to do this. We need to fix the broken parole system. Reform the asylum uh, problem there. We have a, you know, return to some of these policies that work so well to stem the flow during the Trump administration. We remain in Mexico, in, catch and release. Maybe finish the wall. We don't have to do all that together. But the House passed HR 2, which is our signature piece of legislation over six months ago. It sat on Chuck Schumer's desk collecting dust. They seem not to care about this issue. Now they've given lip service to it over the last couple of weeks now, recognizing that something must be done. But but again, as we sit here this morning, they've sent us nothing to even negotiate. And that is inexcusable.
3: There are four national security issues, Taiwan, Ukraine, Israel and the border. And as far as I can tell, there's agreement on three of them. But the fourth there isn't. But the fourth is the one that has 300 terrorist list suspects coming. in. And that's the ones we know about. We don't know about this. The Iranians are pretty good at this, Mr. Speaker. Do they not right. understand that over there at the White House?
1: They seem not to understand or to care, and that's a real problem. Listen, on on Ukraine, we stand with Ukraine against Putin's aggression. Everyone understands that he must be stopped. This is a very serious issue. But you know, the White House is seeking billions in funding on that issue. They haven't given us any clear strategy. No, no appropriate oversight. They've not explained to us what the end game is. I mean, our the U.S. ambassador to to ukraine told me in my office just a few weeks ago that she believes the end game is returning to the 1991 boundary lines which is to retake crimea and i said ma'am are you aware that that's not what your boss says i mean they don't even know in the white house itself what the strategy is and so you have a lot of members in the house who are going home to constituents and, and having town halls in their districts and they're being asked serious questions about this why are we securing the border of a foreign country and taking care of their needs when we're not doing it here at home? And that's a tough, tough question to answer. The White House has to help us in that regard, and they haven't.
3: Mr. Speaker, if they came up with the language and the reforms on the border that you've asked for, would you vote for the funding for Israel, Taiwan, and Ukraine? I just want to make it clear that they are holding us up on the border, and only the border is stopping this package. Is that correct?
1: That's absolutely right. If they did that and gave us a couple of details on Ukraine, we could get this thing through. Um, and it doesn't have to be all in one package. It should be separately, but we could move those measures quickly and we would have the votes in the House. We understand the dire situation that we're in, but the White House has to take care of our nation, and they're not doing it. And that's why our constituents are demanding answers, and that's why we have to hold the line on this. We've got to force their hand, To to stem the flow at our southern border, it's too dangerous to do anything else.
3: Every Republican in the Senate agrees with that. Am I correct? Every Republican in the Senate wants the border changes made in the supplemental package or adjacent to the
1: supplemental package. Am I correct? They have shown that with their votes. Yes. And, And every Democrat in the Senate voted to stop that progress. And and that's where we are. We have an impasse between the two parties. And I look, I've been a good faith negotiator here with with Chuck Schumer and all of my colleagues on the other side to tell them that this is not a political game. I'm not I'm I'm being very forthright. I'm being operating in good faith. I'm telling you, we have to do this for the people. And, And ironically, you you and I both know this would help the president. I mean, politically, I mean, I was in New York the last two weekends. The people of New York are outraged over the border. I mean, they're overrunning Manhattan and New York City illegals. They can't handle it in all the cities, even in the, the big blue cities that used to be sanctuary cities, right? They're, they're crying out for help. The Democrats need to do this as well as the Republicans. And for the life of the I do not know why they won't be reasonable to negotiate this.
2: So are
3: you in danger of going home without any of these four things moving? Because I understand they're they're a package. There are four national security issues. They all have to be dealt with. They are in one package. And you will go home, right, if that package doesn't pass.
1: Listen, Hugh, let me remind everybody, all your listeners, because your your listeners are savvy. They know people are keeping score. We have done our job. The House passed the Israel aid package uh, six weeks ago. Send it over there. It's collecting dust. $14.5 billion is exactly what was requested, and we paid for that. We didn't go borrow it from some other nation to send it to Israel. We paid for it here. But again, what's Chuck Schumer done with that? Nothing. Nothing. It's sitting on his desk. We're ready. We're, we're working. We've been at this every day, and we have been very clear from day one since I took the gavel, as I said. I've told them exactly what we need to get it done, and they've just ignored it. I think they, I think they thought we were bluffing or something, but this is not a game. Are you willing to send the House home if they do not act within this week? Well, Hugh, I mean, we don't I don't know what else to do. I'm not going to have everybody sit here through Christmas twiddling their thumbs. They've not sent me anything. And, you know, I've told I've told the leaders and the Democrat leaders in the Senate that as late as yesterday. Then does something to work on. They haven't done it. They haven't done it. So what else are we to do? Uh, You know, we're willing to work. The House members will will work. We've shown that over and over and over. But we're not getting any cooperation from the White House and the the Senate Democrats at all.
3: All right, Mr. Speaker, then we are at an impasse, and it's up to the Democrats either to send everyone home or not. I want to bring up the old Solomon Amendment. In 2006, the Congress passed a Solomon Amendment, which gave America's universities a choice. Allow the military to recruit on your campuses, or we're not sending you any more money. I would like to give every university, beginning with my alma mater, Harvard, a choice. Either you condemn and act against anti-Semitism on your campus and sign a statement to that effect, or we're cutting you off. What is the chance of cutting off these anti-Semitic universities, beginning with Harvard, whose president refused to condemn as um, anti-Semitic calls for
1: genocide? But we were appalled by that outrageous testimony. It just just staggering. We kind of know what they think. We sort of know the hypocrisy exists there, but you've never seen it uh, on such glaring display. And Harvard, MIT, University of Pennsylvania, you know, we've already had the resignation of the president there, Liz McGill. Um, as, as Chairwoman Elise Stefanik uh, says of our Republican conference, who evoked those responses, you know, one down, two to go. I, I think there needs to be real accountability to you, And I think that what you're referring to with the Solomon Amendment may be one approach. We've, we've launched an investigation here in the House of all this federal funding that these institutions receive. And we have to demand accountability in every possible way. I think everything's on the table right now.
3: Uh, the Harvard Corporation has indicated this morning, according to New York Times, they are retaining President Gay. So they are basically thumbing their nose at the Congress and at the outrage about Harvard. So my alma mater, not, they got $625 million from the federal government. That is unacceptable, Speaker Johnson. Can you do something this year before the end of the year in the package that I expect will move? Because Democrats are nuts not to send money to Israel, to Ukraine, to Taiwan and to the border. They're nuts if they don't do that. But would you attach a Solomon like amendment to this package?
1: Look, I would like to. Um, I don't know how much time we're going to have to do all that. But again, it depends on what is sent over. Um, as I said, everything is on the table. These are fast moving developments. But I could not agree with you more. We have to have accountability. It is inexcusable. These institutions are receiving so many taxpayer dollars when they can't even stand up for the basic human rights of their Jewish students. I mean, the idea that they would not call out uh, cries for uh, the, the, the annihilation of the Jewish state and Jewish people is just It's just unbelievable to us. Um, And and so everything is on the table, Hugh. We'll see.
3: Now, I I just want you to take our audience into the details here, Mr. Speaker. This is not hard. This is actually a couple of pages of legislation, and maybe 10. It's not hard. Who moves the ball forward at this point? You've sent over the bills. I think it's got to be Majority Leader Schumer who sends over a bill, and then you go to a conference. Is that right?
1: That's right. That's how it works. And uh, my suspicion is that he's awaiting on some sort of green light or signal from the White House um, that they typically move in tandem on these things. But, you know, look, I'll tell you, I have been in the SCIF, you know, confidentially in the private settings. I've said publicly, I said this most recently on the stage in the congressional auditorium in front of all of our colleagues uh, just late last week. I I told uh, the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, all of them these are the necessary ingredients this is not difficult we need transformational change on the border which you could do with a stroke of a pen and we need clarity on exactly what and how the money is going to be spent in ukraine and what the what the strategy is very very simple very reasonable request you they've not delivered on any, any of those
2: things so what am i to do coming up the political leadership Khalid Shah and others in qatar have apparently turned off their phones and left their residences and are on the move. And that could mean a lot of things. But I think it is a reminder that this is not going to be forgotten by Israel.
5: When the Town Hall Review returns in a moment... As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
3: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. As Israel continues their war against the terror group Hamas, they are doing so amidst predictable but still notable opposition from many in the international community. On Tuesday, the UN General Assembly voted on an immediate ceasefire. 153 nations voted in favor of the resolution and thus against Israel. 10 voted against the resolution and thus with Israel. And 23 couldn't figure out which way they wanted to go, so they abstained. It was a non binding resolution. But Israel has said it is going forward with the war, so it indicates only the degree to which Israel is willing to continue without international support. And Israel is making progress. We'll turn now to Eli Lake, now with Commentary Magazine. He joined Morgan Ortega, who guest-hosted for me earlier this week.
6: Eli, just give us your thoughts on the latest Israel news and, and what our audience should be thinking of.
2: Well, I think the really big news is the report that was in the Jerusalem Post and others in the Israeli press that the political leadership, Khalid Bashal and others in Qatar, have apparently turned off their phones and left their residences and are on the move. And that could mean a lot of things. It could mean that the Qataris have said, "Okay, we can't really host you anymore. It could mean that the Qataris said, you can stay, but we can no longer guarantee your security. And that could be a recognition of a new change in Israeli policy, which obviously during negotiations with Hamas and the Qataris over the hostages I were probably not planning an assassination mission for the leadership that were residing there. It could just mean that they were being prudent. There's a lot of reports about where they're going. Some say that they're going to Lebanon. Iran is obviously a very obvious possibility there. Another report said potentially that they were going to Algeria. But I think it is a reminder that this is not going to be forgotten by Israel. And so the leadership of hamas is in the crosshairs of something i think everybody probably understood you know on october 7 when we understood how bad this attack was but now you know i think it's really clear and that's that's an interesting development
6: It's a very interesting development, and ultimately all of this comes down to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, Hamas would not be able to do many of these attacks without most of their funding coming from Iran, similar with Hezbollah. So, Eli, what should this administration, after three years of of appeasing and placating and chasing Iran around the world, begging for a deal, uh, what should this administration be doing with Iran now?
2: Well, one thing is they should, I would hope, although... I don't know if the personnel is in place to do something like this, but they should take advantage of some of the work that your administration did, which is to continue to have a channel to Iran's democratic opposition, but more importantly, to use the power of American public diplomacy. There was a lot of great work that was done at the State Department, which I covered, of just using public diplomacy tools, whether it's Twitter or TikTok or Telegram, to express what America's position is on the Iranian regime. But the idea that the United States has its true allies are the Iranian people and not the Iranian regime is very, very important for the Iranian people to understand. And you cannot have that policy if you are pursuing a deal with the Iranians for a number of reasons. First and foremost, the Iranians, I mean, we know this under Obama, they consider, you know, Obama had to pledge in a personal letter to the supreme leader of Iran that we're not interested in supporting, you know, the Iranian opposition or in any way supporting regime change in Iran. Now, regime change has bad connotation, and I understand that in 2023, lots of people would say, well, I don't want to have a war with Iran, and neither do I. But the end result of the sort of corrupt and unrepresentative usurping theocracy that currently runs Iran being displaced through a democratic revolution. Well, that's obviously a result the United States and the civilized world has not only would yeah. desire, but has. I think it's a precondition for international security.
3: With the nation fast approaching 2024 and our presidential election, Donald Trump remains the very clear leader for the GOP nomination. The former president is also facing a host of legal challenges. Perhaps the most serious are those coming from special counsel Jack Smith. Sebastian Gorka turned to Conrad Black.
5: Lord Black is somebody who has uh, suffered at the hands of overzealous prosecutors, uh, understands the paucity the the weakness, and how politicized or perverted the American judicial system can be what it, it 's hard from the outside for us to read why it happened, but the I don't know if it's historic, but the unusual news yesterday that there will be an expedited hearing in the Supreme Court, potentially, of Jack Smith's argument that a president does not hold executive immunity with regards to this president. Uh, What do you make of that and what does it bode for that case and the others the president is facing?
4: Uh, This, as you know, is a murky area of the law and and the... uh development of it uh, is altogether contemporary. We're in uncharted water. Uh, I don't believe there's ever been a case like this because one of the guardrails traditionally of American constitutional democracy is you don't legally harass ex-presidents. We've seen that many times, including in the case of Mr. Nixon, for example, and, and I, which has which undoubtedly, as it's now been accepted by everybody, a wise and just decision by President Ford. There is no Evans now, even now, after 50 years of Mr. Nixon himself. Committed any crimes and it would have been a terrible thing to charge him uh, generated by the atmosphere in which he left office well here we have a quite different situation where the former president was from the day he left office the prime candidate to be the next president and we the the, the uh, justice department and, and some local officials waited until the most opportune moment to disrupt his campaign to real to be reelected president, to lay these charges, uh, most of which have been described by uh, objective legal experts who are not Trump supporters, such as Alan Dershowitz and Jonathan Turley, as nonsense, unfounded, outrageous, and precisely, in effect, what President Trump called them on that uh, citation, that lengthy citation. I mean, it, it is clearly a political move by what is supposed to be an impartial, non-political agency. And if you're going to politicize the media, you, you are going to destroy democracy. And uh, so, so I, I, with all that said, I think what it shows is, first of all, that Smith, the prosecutor, is desperate to try and amplify the chances of a conviction. Of the ex president before the election, but secondly, he is so desperate he is trying to bypass the appeal process and go directly f- from first instance to the highest court in the country, uh, which as far as I know is practically never done and I certainly I never heard of it and and I, I can't imagine that he has any conceivable grounds for requesting it uh, other than his own political convenience, which is not supposed to be a factor and in addition to that i don 't it's any great testament to his confidence that, that he that he has a winning case in in that he uh, appears to think uh, is for certain going to be dragged up to the Supreme Court anyway. So he wants to get there quickly. So I would say that it is. Another egregious example of the attempted utilization of the justice system for illegitimate political purposes, but also no, no show of strength by Trump's enemies. It raises the, the uh, you know, it escalates the war and makes it perhaps even more nerve wracking than it is for the ex president, but it is no show of strength by his opponents. And they're now asking the Supreme Court to approve what, as far
0: as I know, there is no precedent for and no justification for. Coming up. They've got to unite. Everybody's got to say, I will support the nominee.
3: Victor Davis Hanson, when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Stay with us.
5: Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with the Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com.
3: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. As the nation moves into election year, we do so with the nation polarized. There are divisions between the left and the right on everything, but there are also divisions within the left and within the right. When it comes to the election of the nominee, I like to say I'm living in Republican Switzerland. I am neutral, and I'm committed to supporting the Republican nominee, whoever that is. Here's Victor Davis Hanson, who isn't running, but he was joined by Jack Fowler on Victor's podcast.
0: This election has all of the makings of a... 1972 Nixon blowout or a 1984 Reagan blowout and better because you could take the Senate, you can take the House, you can take the presidency. And whether it's uh, DeSantis, who's still ahead of Haley or Trump, they know what to do and they will come in with an agenda and people they can trust after what they've seen the last four years and the sabotage during the Trump period against him. And all you have to do is unite. That's all you have to do. They should have never been fighting in front of the public with the speaker. You know, that debate, we can talk about the debate, but uh Ramaswamy and Christie have zero chance to be elected. And somebody's going to say to me, well, they brought out things where their directness and their, I don't care. They, they took almost as much airtime as DeSantis and Haley. And that's what people want to know. Who's the second and who's the third if Trump gets in legal trouble? And instead, we had all of this back and forth. they got to unite. Everybody's got to say, I will support the nominee no matter what. If you're a MAGA guy, I think I'm a MAGA guy, I will support wholeheartedly Ron DeSantis. I will support Donald Trump, and I will... And I got in trouble for saying this. I will support Nikki Haley over Joe Biden. You better believe I will. In fact, over any socialist, which right. is the, synonymous with a Democratic nominee. And if anybody says, well, you're just a rhino, Victor, I, I don't care. Everybody should ask yourself, what did the never Trumpers achieve? What did George Will achieve? What did David Trump achieve? What did Bill Crystal? What did Charles Sykes? What did all of them achieve? Monichiro, the whole, our former colleagues, I'm not trashing it achieved Kevin a Wim, war in Ukraine, oh, this yes. was violence in the Middle East. That's what they've achieved, right? 500, 500 Obama, Michelle, Barack selected judges <laughs> yeah. as well who are flooding the judiciary. And you can see the ones that will be assigned to Trump. And they gave us 7% interest rates. They gave us 8 million illegal aliens. We're, we're going to be dealing with that for years they gave us a Chinese balloon that humiliated us. They gave us a Hamas war. That's what you do when you say, not in my name will I vote for Donald Trump. And then they said, you know, this whole dictator thing, Jack, it's just like on spec. So Donald Trump now is ahead of Joe Biden. Joe Biden is failing geometrically, as I always say, at a geometric rate. And he the other day, Jack, he was mentioning a girl again. I could not believe it. Girl, he mentioned somebody. I mean, he can't be let loose without eyeing, talking, touching some preteen girl. He's completely unfit to be president. And then we got Hunter, and we'll talk about the indictment, no doubt. But the whole Biden corrupt consortium is falling apart, and the left knows it. And they say, oh, my God, they're going to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, we tried the lie about the laptop disinformation. Don't remind us of the Russian collusion lie. We said the Bidens were as clean as possible, they were just perfect. That was a lie. We tried to get him off the ballot. That's not working. We've got Letita James, Alvin Drive, Fannie willis and jack smith that looks pretty good but in case it doesn't let's resurrect that old chest let's get that old chestnut and say he's a dictator and i thought to myself okay so then he by fiat tried to cancel student loans no right before the midterm did he by fiat just start draining the postrigic petroleum reserve for electoral advantage no he filled it up he filled it up Did he lie? Did he his FBI guys were they all pro Trump and they tried to subvert the FBI? No, they lied under oath, most of them. And they tried to ruin him in 2016. They're they're let loose their retrieval service for the Biden family, whether laptops, guns or diaries. And of course, we know. Uh, they love Catholic uh, masses in Latin, and they like to go after student. They work with Twitter. They pay him $3 million. Did he do that? No. He may have talked trash. He may have tried to provoke people. Who knows? But when you actually look, did he break U.S. immigration law and let in 8 million people? No. He didn't do any of that. Did he start a war? No. So there's no classification of dictatorship that fits him. And yet that's what they're trying to pass on because he's ahead in the polls. Biden's corrupt and failing. You get Victor's podcast at Salem coming up.
6: We don't appreciate the power and the importance of social norms until they're broken.
3: The soul of civility. When the town hall review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment.
5: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with you,
3: Hewitt. Civility. I think we all notice that it is in short supply and often in recent times. But does it matter that it's generally gone? I'd argue, absolutely, that it does. One step we can take in regaining civility is regaining an appreciation for what our guest in the title of her book calls The Soul of Civility. Alexandra Hudson, a young author, has done great work here in this, her first book. She joined me to talk about the soul of civility. I had never heard of Giovanni della Casa and Baldassare Castelloni, and I had never heard of John Fletcher Moulton, a 19th century English barrister, mathematician, and judge, observed that there exists a middle ground between the realm of the things we do with unrestricted freedom and those things we do because they are prescribed by law. He called this domain the obedience to the unenforceable. This is where our actions are influenced by a sense of what we view as good, moral, and proper, our unofficial code of duty to our families, friends, and fellow citizens. That's where the real greatness of a civilization lies. Where did you find that?
6: It's really kind of hard to remember every source of everything that is in the book. Maybe there's this one lovely book. From uh, by an a Oxford historian called Keith Thomas called in pursuit of civility, and it's all of our favorite thinkers from Adam Smith to David Hume to John Locke, but specifically through the, through the lens of their thoughts on civility and social norms. So he's like a, a very uh, illustrious historian, and he's like a true scholar in that he you know dug through archives and letters for you know decades writing this book on uh, on civility and in in specifically the early modern period. So that's that's a likely candidate. I really love that book in particular, but as you know, I really like to I wanted this book to represent the human condition, and so I zoomed out at, across history and across culture to help us think more clearly about this most important question of our day, which is how might we flourish across deep difference
3: How ought we to treat fellow citizens? That's what I tell people. Alexander, this book came out when a war broke out. Has it interfered with your marketing and the ability to get to people about the soul of civility?
6: Israel was invaded by Hamas. Three days before my book came out, and at first, you know, I like the rest of the world was just in awe. All of my media was canceled—television, radio. Uh, I did a few podcasts in studio, which was which was fine, but uh, it felt a little bit deflating at first. And then I realized, though, my book is needed all the more now. My book is, in many ways, a humanistic manifesto—a manifesto of the profound gift of our humanity, of our dignity. Um, when we need. Especially as the stakes are high, we're most inclined to dehumanize the other when we feel like we're under threat. When we feel like it's an existential crisis, that that includes times of war, that includes uh, very polarized elections, and and so I hope that my readers come away with with a a revived appreciation of the profound gift of being human, which is an antidote to these deeply divided, deeply dehumanizing, barbaric times that that we live in. And I hope that they come away encouraged that we each have a really important role to play in being part of the solution in our everyday.
3: Tell people about the Larry David effect, because it really makes sense.
6: So Larry David is the creator of Seinfeld and he has his own spin-off show called Curb Your Enthusiasm. And Larry David is everyone's inner ego and inner id. Like we it's a very cringe inducing show because yes. you know he calls himself a social assassin. So when he's in a social context, he is that person who will call someone out for for a you know petty social infraction. Everything that we might otherwise, you know, roll our eyes at, be annoyed at, but let it go, he takes it to the extreme. You know, someone cuts in line at a coffee shop or double parks. So he's the person that will go into the coffee shop and say, who is double parked? You know, get out here. Like, this is society. You don't get to do that. <laughs> like, things that we don't, we wouldn't, you know, every one of us wouldn't expend the emotional energy for. He's there for it. He, like, lives for those sort of, like, social, um, yeah, that, that that social friction. And so what's funny about Larry David, I, I, I argue that he is the foremost defender of civilization today, because if we don't want a nanny state or totalitarian regime micromanaging our everyday interactions and, and causing us um, through the force of law to think of others alongside of ourselves, we should be grateful that people like Larry David are harnessing the power of social shame <laughs> to do it for us. And in the book, right before I get to the Larry David effect, I talk about modern examples in London, in Paris, and in New York City under Michael Bloomberg's mayoralship, uh, where 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 Politeness, basic courtesy to others, was legislated. It failed. Oh, you you have the
3: posters (laughs) reproduced from France, which I've never seen before. And that was another illumination for me. Tell people about the French poster campaign.
6: So the French campaign, the French politeness campaign, was one of the more successful ones. Like Larry David, the French also harnessed social shame. Um, but apparently, the French had, had had enough of their fellow Frenchmen, especially in, in the Parisians, and so the the, the French uh, city council they instituted this poster campaign that was on every subway and, and every subway station, analogizing common discourteous actions to different animals, saying, you know, don't act like this gross sloth who's just like lounging on on, on, a, on a subway bench. You know, don't spit on the subway. Um, you know, station, don't, don't do X, Y, Z. And, and it was saying, you know, let's be civil down the line. Let's think of others alongside of ourselves. And that, that actually worked that poster campaign. It got people to think like, yeah, I don't want to be like the beasts. You know, I'm part of Civil, I'm part of civilization, and, and I'm going to do, do a little bit better. Um, but, so that was one of the more effective uh, autocratic attempts to improve civility. Some of the least effective ones were Michael Bloomberg's politeness campaign in New York City, where you know, he, he, he apparently decided that New Yorkers had become too impolite for him to tolerate. Or, and so he instituted all these fines and laws that you could be fined $50 for yelling at your kids softball game for putting your your feet on the subway bench for you know doing these common for for tweeting or texting in, in Broadway or, or at the theater and it, it was an utter failure because people don't like to be micromanaged New Yorkers did not like to be civilized by their local government and it was impossible to enforce that was an utter failure but the point is we should be thankful that Larry David's in the world Exist to keep us in line, keep us in check. Um, because if we don't, it, it gets bad enough that we, we are consistently and chronically discourteous enough that autocrats past and present will be tempted to control ourselves for us.
3: Now, it's one of many brilliant insights, but I wonder if you heard from Larry David yet, because I don't know that anyone has ever recognized, uh, what's it called, what's the name of the series? Um,
6: Curb Your Enthusiasm?
3: I, yeah, Curb Your Enthusiasm. I just call it the Larry David Show. I think it's an original insight. Was it original to you?
6: I think it is original to me. Anytime I'm in a social interaction, I see something happen. I'm like, you know, I'm going to let this go, but Larry David wouldn't. And here's how it would play out. I have this like running list of all these like little vignettes. And that's how the show is done. They have a, they put you in a context. It's mostly improv. It's not scripted, right? They put you in a context. They say, okay, here's the premise of the skit. Now let's see how it plays out. You know, here's your character. And so it would just be so much fun. He's, he's absolutely delightful. It's hysterical. It is, you know, it's a comedy of manners. It, It really is. We don't appreciate the power and the importance of social norms until they're broken. Coming up. Civility is internal. It's a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals.
3: A few more minutes on the soul of civility in the final segment of the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt.
1: When the night has come. Charlie Kirk here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather, and opinions. AM is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping you advised of threatening weather conditions and AMBER alerts. Text AM to number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 52886. Standard message and data rates may apply.
3: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. I should say to you just briefly before we pick up on my conversation with Alexandra Hudson, I very much enjoyed this book, The Soul of Civility. Civility is something I value, something I appreciate. I hope I model it. I know I try to. But in this volume, I found myself learning something new at every turn of the page, deepening my appreciation of civility and why it matters so much. Let's return for a few more minutes to my conversation with its author, Alexandra Hudson. Let me go and finish by going back in the soul of civility to the essential distinction between politeness and civility. Would you explain to people the difference between politeness and civility, which takes a few pages to get?
6: We hear these words, politeness and, and civility, used interchangeably. People either want more of them to revive and heal our public discourse today, and they hearken back to this golden age, or they want less of them. They claim that civility and politeness are tools of the patriarchy, of white supremacists, of people in positions of power to silence and oppress and keep the powerless powerless. I argue that both these contingents misunderstand what civility and politeness are. Politeness is manners. It's etiquette. It's It's technique, it's behavior, it's external. Where civility is internal, it's a disposition of the heart, it's a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are worthy of a bare minimum of respect just by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. And that crucially, sometimes actually respecting others requires being impolite, telling hard truths, engaging in robust debate. And again, we've been making, we've been conflating these two words for a very long time. The very first English dictionary given to us by Samuel Johnson in 1755, defines civility in terms of politeness, politeness in terms of civility, and we've been doing it wrong ever since. <laughs> so, um, the, but the etymology supports this distinction that the etymology of politeness is polier, which means to smooth or to polish, and that's what politeness does. It papers over a difference, polishes over it, it focuses on the, on the outside, the external. The etymology of civility is kivitas, which is the root of all things related to city, citizen, um, citizenship, the city and civilization itself. And that's what civility is. It's the disposition and the habits of a citizen in the city.
3: Do you believe, Alexandra, that repetition of politeness will lead to civility?
6: I do agree with that. Um, so at its best, politeness will perfect the inner disposition of civility, the, the rituals, the practices, the behavior of sacrificing self for others for the sake of the, the joint project of living well with others. But too often we are content with mere politeness, we're content with just the gesture, just the behavior, and we insufficiently seek to cultivate and nurture the inner disposition of actually respecting others. And so, my argument is: let's not settle for just the, 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 the going through the motions and, and, and faux and faux respect that is focused on j- just empty gestures, um, and that l- let's instead focus on on cultivating, especially in children, uh, the inner disposition of civility and said. This is how, what I talk about: great hearts that that the outer actions will ideally flow from an inner character.
3: Thank you for joining us for the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Catch my complete conversation with Alexandra Hudson at townhallreview.com. If you're enjoying Town Hall Review, make it a point to share our podcast, please, with a friend. Send them to our website, townhallreview.com. Special thanks and Christmas greetings to executive producer Russell Schubin, producers David Bouchon, Alex Perez, Adam Ramsey, Harley Eady, and Dwayne Patterson. Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining us.